Good morning, data gurus, and welcome to the second episode of Data Democratization. My name is Jeffrey Dobin. I'm here with my co-host, Alexandra Ebert, GDPR expert and chief trust officer at Mostly AI. And today, we are joined by Netta Basakri, Vice President, Senior Counsel from Apple Bank New York. Yes, that Apple Bank, the second largest state chartered savings bank in New York. Alexandra, why should people listen? Well, Jeff, there's so many things. Today, you will learn from Nader that the quickest path to success with other teams outside your group, especially when working in the field of data privacy, is to improve privacy awareness with those cross-functional teams. Your own subject matter expertise is not enough. You should definitely make friends with the IT folks. If you can effectively increase awareness, the result will be improved collaboration and speed in achieving your goals. Well then, today's episode should be a good one. Definitely. Let's get started. Our featured guest is Netta Basakri, a lawyer and privacy expert who began her privacy and tech journey in Seattle, Washington, and somehow made it to the Big Apple, NYC. <laughs> but there's no East Coast, West Coast rivalry here. It's all love. Before learning her story, Netta's going to hit us with three recommendations for our peers in the data privacy field. Netta, take it away. Yeah, so thanks for having me. My first recommendation is making sure that you socialize privacy concepts and practice practices before you attempt to operationalize them within your organization. The second recommendation would be to lean on both carrots and sticks when you're looking for organizational buy-in from stakeholders and partners alike. And the third recommendation, given that privacy is so interdisciplinary, learn about a privacy-related discipline that's not your own. Excellent. So let's dissect these and go into these one by one, Etta. Yeah. All right. So starting with the first one, right, about socializing these concepts. Can you share here yeah. a story or an example of what this looks like in practice? Yeah, um, you know, I think given the various functions that a privacy office serves, you can't do everything and oper operationalize all of your privacy um, objectives without collaboration and involvement from other business units, from other partners, et cetera. So the one that comes to mind for this as an example, um, you know, carrying out inventories of your personal data across your organization, you will necessarily need to collaborate. The folks who have, you know, the most proximity to those business processes and most proximity to the personal data processed in those spaces are the business owners. Um, but, you know, trying to carry out an inventory in a vacuum is a really difficult feat. Um, so, you know, before you can bring those folks along for your inventory journey, I think you need to step back and explain the rationale, particularly if this is a new exercise and other, you know, functions that your organization, you know, haven't had a need to inventory for other non-privacy reasons before, um, you know, being clear on the rationale, being clear on the objectives, being clear on what you're looking for as an output. Um, so while maybe this isn't stakeholder level buy-in, you do still need to engage with the folks who are going to be doing the actual work of, of, of an inventory um, without priming you know, the environment for, for the operation. 
I think you're positioning yourself for a lot of confusion, a lot of pushback. Um, it may look like uh, an arbitrary an arbitrary ask without um, you know an organizational level purpose. So I, I think you know just like anything where you do want to, to achieve some meaningful collaboration, socializing the privacy rationale and the means to achieve your privacy objective is critical. Yeah. So how do you get someone to buy in when it's not necessarily super important? Mm -hmm. For their own specific yeah. role, even though it it overlaps with your initiative and project. Yeah, you know, I, I think the important thing there is to balance both carrots and sticks, right? So if you are doing something like an inventory or an assessment, or you are, you know, reviewing a contract with a vendor and you are looking to raise specific issues relating to data processing, whatever the, the, the function may be, um, you want to both address the carrots and the sticks. And so it may be that compliance is your stick. Um, and that's an easy thing for others around an organization to rally around doing it because you have to. Um, but that gets you only as far as checking those boxes, right? So those compliance boxes, um, you're, you're not going to really move the needle on program maturity if, if that's kind of your, your only tool to lean on in, in engaging with folks um, with respect to buy-in. Um, the, the sticks really depend on how your organization functions and your organization's interests. So, you know, it could be the case that you, um, you know, are, are very customer-facing and customer loyalty or expanding the customer base is very important to the folks you're working with or going to work with. And privacy is an important um, factor in retaining and developing a loyalty and a customer base res respectively. Um, it could be the case that other operations or, or rather functions um, at your organization may have uh, a use for something that you are already tackling. So for instance, maybe you have a data governance group that isn't necessarily focused on privacy at your organization, but has an interest in finding out what you have learned from your inventory. So there could be some additional uh, support, um, whether it be on the resource front or um, you know, financially or in a way of colleagues who can help carry out an initiative. You could kind of join forces on that front and that's kind of your carrot in that context. So I think it really depends on what your organization looks like, but there certainly are ways to um, identify what's important um, in your space and, and use that as your pitch. Absolutely. And then jumping to number three, can you remind me again? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, the, yeah, the third one, um, you know, just, just given how interdisciplinary privacy is, it's not strictly a legal uh, discipline or a technical discipline or a business operations discipline. It's a fusion of quite literally everything um, within an organization. And so my I suppose, recommendation um, to make your own life easier, but also for the folks that you're collaborating with, is that you become familiar with other privacy-related dis privacy disciplines other than your own. So if you are you know, very savvy on the legal side, consider finding opportunities for more technology exposure. If you're a technologist, consider getting a grasp of the legal landscape. 
So you have a sense of where your, your legal or compliance colleagues are coming from. Um, things like that, um, you know, opportunities to expand your competencies uh, will make your engagement with colleagues easier, will help you issue spot when you are, you know, carrying out your own day job um, as it relates to privacy. Um, and again, the, you know, the, the goal isn't really to become a, a professional in that space as well. It, it is intended kind of to help you become conversant, um, help you issue spot. Um, so you can either pull in the right people and know when to pull them in or begin um, asking questions about how to resolve a privacy-related concern or consideration. I love that. And you also mentioned mm -hmm. this cross-disciplinary um, focus, mm -hmm. right? And you mentioned, you know, if you're in legal, maybe it makes sense to focus on technology. And I think that's a really good segue to talk about your journey and your path, right? I'm sure people would love to learn mm -hmm. how you made these discoveries, why you ended up where you are, <laughs> and, and also would love to hear a little bit about how you got involved in tech yourself. So Netta, what, what brought you into the privacy field and, and how did you specifically get yep. involved in technology as well? Yeah, um, so my privacy journey started about let's see, five or six years ago. Um, and at the time I was practicing as an attorney in the Seattle area, um, focusing primarily on business transactions, entity formation, um, a little bit of IP in the trade secret space. Um, and, you know, to the extent that a number of clients, that, um, you know, they began floating questions about appropriate data processing, privacy notices, um, things that related to the offerings that they were putting out out for, you know, consumers to, to discover and hopefully buy. Um, and the, that was kind of the first time that privacy was on my radar screen. I think it was also around that time that I was aware or first aware that my technical competencies were really non-existent. Um, you know, I, I had a legal background. I double majored in political science and law societies and justice in undergrad. So, you know, I, I couldn't be further away from all things tech related. Um, and I knew that if I wanted to kind of pursue a path in privacy that, you know, I didn't need to become an engineer necessarily, but I, I did need to get some sense of the lay of the land privacy or tech, technology wise as it relates to, um, you know, data processing within an organization. So I actually left my job um, and moved down to San Francisco for a fellowship in software engineering. And um, I focused on Python programming in the web, web application space. Spoiler alert, I am not an engineer, um, but the, the takeaways were incredibly valuable for me. I think it helped me, you know, understand even at a foundational level, um, you know, working knowledge level, the machinery behind data flows and data storage when you, um, you know, are using a web application or a website. So that that was incredibly helpful. Um, I, the takeaways, you know, from a technical sense, again, not enough to have me uh, function as, as a technologist myself, but they, they did make having conversations with folks who are in IT, who are in InfoSec much easier. And, you know, on the flip side, also, you know, explaining to folks who have less 
technology exposure exposure like or her had less technology exposure like myself um, when there may be issues warranting um, escalation to somebody who's better equipped on the technical side to to address them. So um, after that experience, um, my first role in the San Francisco area was with uh, a company called TrustArc, and they focus on um, privacy solutions in the software and professional services space. Um, I primarily worked on cross-border transfer issues with clients and preparing them to align their practices with the requirements of frameworks like the Privacy Shield framework and APAC. Um, of course, Privacy Shield is no longer with us, but um, you know, at the time, um, helping those organizations bring their practices in line and ramp up for certification under those frameworks. I left San Francisco and went back to Seattle uh, and joined my alma mater, the University of Washington, as Assistant Director of Privacy. And that was a really exciting role. Uh, you know, public universities at the size and scale of the University in, of, of Washington really do function as municipalities. They, they have so many functions that don't even relate to academics. The research space is incredibly innovative and exciting and posed a lot of really interesting novel, interesting and novel privacy questions and, and considerations that I was you know, eager to explore. And like you said, now I'm in New York. Um, I'm VP and senior counsel for Apple Bank, which is a regional bank here. And uh, it's my first role in financial services, but uh, for, for anyone who's been in privacy and has worked across industries, you know that kind of those, those principles remain the same. So yeah, I, I've been on since May. A lot of program development and, and lots of exciting things on, on that front. Well, Netta, congratulations on your new role. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks. So going back for a moment, you mentioned in your mm -hmm. past, you were focused on cross-border transfers and you mentioned yeah. um, working with an APEC framework. Can you share a little yeah. insight for our listeners or the layperson who might not be familiar with what the, what that means and what those what challenges exist around those those rules? Yeah. So at the time, um, my work with the APEC cross border privacy rules was very similar to the work I did on the Privacy Shield front. Um, the idea was that uh, with respect to different aspects of a client's privacy program. For both frameworks, we were assessing, you know, their practices with respect to notice, with respect to consent, with respect to security, with respect to vendor management, and, you know, supporting those clients as they were working to close compliance gaps that we've, we had identified in, in the assessments we prepared for them, and really getting them prepped for um, participation and certification under those two regimes. Um, both. Both frameworks have their own requirements for, for how you, um, you know, handle personal data and the policies and procedures that you have in place uh, to support those, you know, making sure that you're able to demonstrate your compliance um, and, and making those changes internally to bring everything up to speed. So, yeah, that was, that was kind of my focus there. Thank you so much for sharing that mm -hmm. and also for sharing your story and your journey. So, yeah. Yeah, we looked a little bit into the past, but why don't we focus mm -hmm. a little bit now 
on the future and yeah. specifically in the next six months or so, uh, what are you currently focused on and how do you mm-hmm. measure success in your role? And also maybe this is a good time to um, throw in some, some legalese to share that. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, you know, happy to join today. Uh, everything that I'm sharing in the way of insight is my own um my own opinion, not of my current or past employer. So thanks for reminding me to do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, speaking personally for myself um, and thinking and imagining um, what success looks like in a new role in a new industry, um, this is my first uh, job in financial services. So I have been and am aiming to continue um, really immersing myself in the frameworks and regimes that govern retail banking privacy. So for, you know, my purposes, you know, being conversant and understanding and being able to apply GLBA, both the privacy rule and the safeguards rule, understanding state level uh, regulations, DFS Part 500 has some important safeguards and security controls that financial services organizations or rather financial institutions need to have in place. And inevitably those find them their way into vendor contracts and whatnot. So, um, you know, it, it, it has been, um, and like I said, will continue to be a goal of mine to be, be better immersed in all things financial privacy. And when you immerse yourself in, are you doing this because mm. you're passionate about it? Or is it also because your job <laughs> totally requires you to do it? And or is it a combination of the two? Um, it's both. You know, I think from kind of an intellectual and academic level, having experienced privacy program design and strategy and, you know, rolling out initiatives and in privacy spaces again, different industries, it is interesting to see how you see the, how the same themes and principles reemerge. Um, you know, notice exists across all privacy uh, regimes as a requirement. Um, the, the details about how you properly give notice may differ, but the principle still is the same. For, for certain frameworks, consent is really important. Again, the details of what constitutes valid consent or how you go about getting it those details may differ, but the principles, again, are the same. So, you know, from an American perspective, um, thinking about sectoral laws at the federal level, you know, I've, I've dealt with FERPA and higher ed from a distance, a little bit of HIPAA for, for healthcare to the extent that, um, you know, the university I was at did have a medical center. And, and now kind of pulling those principles and practices in into a financial services setting with respect to GLBA. So I think just as an academic exercise, that's very interesting. But yes, absolutely. I, I, it's imperative that I know how to navigate these, these applicable laws um, for, for my own day-to-day. So that's, it's been uh, great to learn and um, exciting to, excited to learn more in the way of nuance and pro tips. So if there's someone who's up and coming, and wants to follow mm-hmm. in your journey or in your footsteps here, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say they want to become a privacy officer or work as in-house counsel for a bank. What are the things that they can do or what are the things that they're going to be measured on where if someone was coming up under you that you would look for to say, hey, mm-hmm. these are the things that you want to do that are going to make you stand out and, and climb the ladder? 
So, you know, I will say that my, my journey, it, it wasn't designed at the front end with a, a certain objective, you know, being in the role I'm in or potentially the future roles that I will have. I, for a lot of the, the steps along the way, some of those I kind of fell into. So, you know, I probably, probably, probably wouldn't have discovered privacy, but for those initial clients that were floating those questions, I probably wouldn't have done a fellowship, but for the fact that I realized I know nothing about tech and each of the subsequent steps, you know, not really something deliberate other than knowing that I wanted to be in the privacy space. So if I were to kind of give some insight to somebody who is interested in privacy or wants to continue um, in the privacy space, maybe, you know, don't look at the discrete steps in my own journey, but more broadly think about where, what skill set you already have. You know, are you more tech oriented, legal oriented? Are you more process and program development oriented? Filling in some of those competency gaps that, you know, you may not have with other disciplines so that you have the right exposure, thinking about the kinds of organizations that you want to contribute to. If you know that there is a certain type of processing, well, maybe that's too nerdy of a way to say it, but maybe if you know that there's a certain kind of service that that is exciting to you or a product that's exciting to you, that could be a motivation for being more deeply immersed in, in that area as a, as a privacy professional. If there's a certain law that you're very comfortable with and you want to continue, you know, developing more nuanced knowledge and, and, and applications of that law, then perhaps that can be your guiding principle. So I think there are some personal considerations to take into account, but there certainly are, you know, factors that can steer you in different directions based on your preferences, I suppose, and the opportunities that present themselves. Something that I love that you did early on was taking that fellowship mm -hmm. and, and learning Python. Mm -hmm. I imagine that speaking, <laughs> well, I'm saying that's a language in itself, but, but speaking yeah. a programmer's language and really being able to relate to them, I think earns some sort of level of respect that others in privacy <laughs> or legal wouldn't, wouldn't have. And it probably also puts you in a better position to be a liaison and communicate between tech teams and legal. Has, has that played any role in, in your development or, or your ability to communicate and work with others? Yeah, you know, admittedly, I, I haven't looked at a coding screen in, in some time, but the, the takeaways were really important with respect to my interactions with folks in other departments and other functions. It's made my conversations with IT folks and others in all of my roles since then, much smoother, um, much more collaborative, fewer, fewer interruptions to kind of a timeline. So it's, it's been a really helpful way to kind of facilitate collaboration on, on that front. So in the way of interpersonal, you know, relationships, make friends with your, your IT folks, with your InfoSec folks, you know, you don't have to go as far as learning a programming language by any means. And, you know, like I said, I, I haven't looked at a screen in ages, but um, the, the, the competencies um, that come with having gone through that kind of exposure are, are really um, valuable and, and worthwhile takeaways. So make friends with those in IT. I love that. <laughs> yes, they're your friends. So looking ahead now, um, 
if you could make a prediction about 2021 and mm -hmm. obviously 2020, if you were making predictions, you, everyone would have gotten it wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> in your yeah. space, right. What, what would be your prediction for mm -hmm. 2021? So I think, uh, crystal ball here. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of action on the state level in terms of legislation. There are a number of states that are back at it with privacy bills. New York is got its uh, New York Privacy Act um, up for the third time. I think Washington, too, their privacy bill is up for the third year in a row. There are a number of other bills in New York as well, some that perhaps look a little more like CCPA. But in any case, around the country, I think we're going to see at the state level that the landscape is changing and we're going to have to be cognizant of more than just California. Um, and what those implications are for, you know, as privacy professionals for our own operations and for our own practices. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll, let's talk in December, I guess. <laughs> that, that, that's a good point and a good prediction. Yeah. What about beyond the state level? Because you're right, there are many mm -hmm. states that are looking at this. But what about on the federal level? Do you think the U.S. will adopt something similar to the GDPR to hold all states to the same standard? You know... Given, given, you know, we're in a new administration, or we have a new administration now, we have already seen bills in years past by members of the House and the Senate. They don't seem to have had, I don't think they seem to have had as much traction as maybe the state level bills have had, um, or at least, you know, to the extent that they haven't gotten over the finish line. So I don't know what that looks like. It, it, perhaps the next four years, we'll see things change a bit. But more broadly, I don't know that at a federal level, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be wrong about this, but that we would see something analogous to GDPR. GDPR uh, is incredibly rigorous. And compared to our kind of sectoral federal laws that exist now, there's a huge gap in what you would need to do, um, you know, operationally to become compliant. And I don't know if we're at a point federally, maybe on the state level, but federally to move that far that quickly. I think we'll, if anything were to pass, you know, federally, we would probably see elements of GDPR, but not, I don't think it would be a, a wholesale equivalent to, to what they have across, across the ocean. So we'll see. I could be wrong, but uh, that, that's kind of my best guess. If we see something, it'll be bits and pieces of GDPR and, and not assuming anything is over the finish line. Speaking of the GDPR, and I don't know if mm -hmm. I'm thinking of GDPR or CCPA, but I know CCPA has really <laughs> used that as a bar to, to try to live up to that standard. I think of the right to erasure or the right to deletion as mm -hmm. meaning two similar, but maybe slightly definitionally different things within within the CCPA and GDPR. Just from a language standpoint, do you prefer the idea of the right, just the way it sounds, right to deletion or right to erasure? <laughs> oh, just the way it sounds? Um, you know, from a branding perspective, I guess. If I, from a consumer perspective, erasure sounds truly like, as you know, the, the right was branded in the GDPR space, the right to be forgotten. It sounds like it never happened, right? Um, and so, I think that's probably more attractive in, in the way of wanting to exercise the right as a consumer. Deletion, maybe less so. So if you are asking which one sounds 
more compelling as a consumer, I would say the, the former. As a practical matter, when deletion or erasure do kick in, you know, there there are a number of considerations that you've already gone through to determine one that you do need to, you know, satisfy the request and that there are no other reasons that would exempt you from it. So I guess overselling it, like I guess GDPR might be overselling it with their their verbiage, but that's that's how the sausage is made, I guess, behind the scenes, all the rights exemptions and all that fun stuff. I like the way that you thought about this and put yourself in the consumer's shoes. Mm. And I think oftentimes working in privacy, people forget that and they just sometimes think here are the rules. And you were talking about this before, but like mm -hmm. you have to check these certain boxes and yeah. how important it is to actually think about the individual. And I guess here it's a little bit easier because we are the consumer of, of, of so many yeah. things and social media is huge right now. So it, I really like the way you position that. So maybe this is actually... A good segue, and I was getting yeah. ahead of myself here. We <laughs> every time that we play a game called this or that, which you probably heard of, and right. I yeah. probably should have saved the GDPR or CCPA question around the right to erasure <laughs> for that. But you know, we're fair enough. We're, we're on the fly here, so I'm going to give you two options. Yeah. You say the first thing that comes to mind. Feel yeah. free to answer with one word or give a full explanation. Okay. Whatever comes out, okay. totally cool. It's all good either way. All right, I'm ready. I like it. Okay, so then let's start with the obvious one we were just talking about. GDPR or CCPA? Uh, GDPR. Okay, San Francisco Which or New might York make me sound a bit crazy. Uh, San Francisco or New York City? New York City. Academia or the private sector? That's a tricky one. Um, you know, academia is near and dear to my heart because because of all the really innovative and interesting things that they're doing and, and problems that they're solving, so much novelty in that space. And I think there's also greater proximity to the folks whose personal data you're protecting. You, you get to see them as you're working. And, and so there is that kind of more human connection. On the flip side, though, you know, the private sector, that's where I think we're going to see the most action in terms of the future of privacy. I think that's where we're going to see the, the legal landscape and best practices change the most. So if you're, you know, to the extent that it's good to be in the epicenter, I, I, I you know, like the private, private sector is also fond. I'm fond of it rather. Um, so yeah, I think uh, split the baby on that one. Okay. All right. Something more fun. Espresso or latte? Espresso. Double espresso. No milk, no sugar. And if you're not making at home, Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks? Ooh, uh, Starbucks, I guess. I'm from Seattle though, so I feel like I've been spoiled with other good coffee other than Starbucks. And we don't actually have Dunkin' in Seattle, so. Does a good, does a good cafe or coffee spot come to mind <laughs> for Seattle? Oh, I love Stumptown. Um, and I think there are Stumptown locations here in New York, which is good. Good to know, good to know that I can get Starbucks and go elsewhere if I want. Excellent. All right. Privacy or security? Uh, privacy, but I am a privacy professional, so I, I know that there's some bias in that. True. Okay. Apple or Google? Google, but not for any privacy-related reason. Um, I've never had an iPhone, 
And I think at this point in my life, I'm very happy and settled into, you know, the world of Google and all things Android. And I'm not, I'm not switching anytime soon. The new app clubhouse or Reddit? Uh, Reddit. I don't know very much about clubhouse. Um, I know all the cool kids are really into it, but I, I think I'm too behind on that trend to, have a preference so reddit it is okay and then here this is the arguably the most important one since we're in super bowl season <laughs> yeah the question here is patrick mahomes or tom brady mm, patrick mahomes absolutely yeah nice very confident in that answer too yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well thank you yeah. netta um thank really, you it was, it was wonderful yeah really appreciate you joining us today and having you on the data democratization podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We're going to kick it back to Alexandra for our top takeaways of the day. Thank you, Chair. What an exciting episode. The three things you should absolutely remember. are: Number one, socializing privacy concepts and standards with non-privacy colleagues is important if you want to speed up collaboration across teams. Number two, to get buy-in, you need both carrots and sticks. If your goal is to mature beyond compliance, you must identify privacy-related carrots that may be compelling for your organization's decision makers. Number three, you don't need to be an expert, but you should aim to become familiar with disciplines other than your own that relate to privacy. Cross-disciplinary knowledge will make you valuable in spotting privacy considerations and that will lead to important opportunities with stakeholders or partners in other functions. Chef, how can people help us today? Glad you asked. To our audience, if you have 33 seconds, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I promise every bit counts. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Nader and of course for you to listening today. See you next time.